we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 4, Urban Futures, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. We hope you were able to join us last week for a very spirited discussion on the future of education with Bard President Leon Botstein. Leon clearly has no shortage of insights as to the future of both K-12 and secondary education. If you have any questions, comments, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. One of the writings that caught our eye this week is a recent book, and by recent, I mean post-pandemic, entitled 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Sort of right up our alley. The book is written by a University of Pennsylvania um, professor at their Wharton School, Mauro Guillen. It is a great read. And the pace of change, which we will experience, is highlighted by it being within one decade or just 10 years. Um, Take this one factoid. There will be more grandparents than grandchildren as we age and do not have as many children. So what do we do? With what we call it pattern, the longevity economy as it emerges, healthcare, education, adjustments to technology, to name a few, must be quickly rethought as that is the emerging market. In this week's episode, we are fortunate to be joined by Jonathan Bowles, the CEO of the Center for Urban Futures. While most of Jonathan's work is focused on the five boroughs in New York City, He is in a position to help the Hudson Valley rethink its trajectory. Jonathan recently held events on how to help small business and emerging sectors in New York City, but let's save that for our guest. But before we join Jonathan, let's ask Joe Chaika, what's up, Joe, to hear what's new in the Hudson Valley this week? Hey, JD, thanks. I want to take a few minutes to talk about our work up in Ulster County today. We've been working on a new housing action plan since early summer. The report will include a series of recommendations based on three critical elements of research that fall under both qualitative and quantitative information. Number one, demographics. We have dug deep into data from the Census, the American Community Survey, Department of Labor, and other state and federal resources. 
We are also analyzing real-time real estate data and trends in terms of home sales, inventory, and establishing an affordability matrix to determine the availability and affordability to the residents in the county. Each municipality will be receiving an individualized demographic and market snapshot. Number two, interviews. We're conducting a series of interviews and asking community stakeholders about challenges and barriers to housing in the county. This ranges from realtors to lenders to property managers to developers and builders. Number three, community engagement. This is a virtual engagement process. In today's world, we can't meet in person, but that's not gonna stop us from getting feedback from the community up in Ulster County. We're scheduled for this coming Thursday at 6.30 to talk about challenges that residents are having with housing. Participants will have an opportunity to provide feedback on those challenges they see and, well, let's just say you can check the Ulster County website for more specific registration and information. We've been working closely with the County Executive's Office and the Planning Department. We're also working with a County-appointed Housing Committee. Very strong leadership there in Ulster County, looking forward to coming to some really good solutions. The combination of the data research, community engagement, and feedback from the committee will help shape the recommendations for the Housing Action Plan. Our early findings point to drastically rising home prices, a lack of housing inventory on the market, an aging housing stock, an influx of new residents from the New York City area, and a lack of affordable housing for both renters and home buyers. The goal of the project is to offer a series of recommendations for the county and municipalities to provide a wide range of housing options. Not just affordable, but a wide range of options, ranging from shelters for the homeless, all the way up to seasonal homes, and ancillary dwelling units, and even short-term rentals. Another goal of the study is to educate community leaders, residents, and the business community about the housing crisis and provide potential solutions. One of the most critical outcomes is to provide a foundation of solid data and analysis with recommendations to build a pathway for new and expanded conversations about the importance in providing a range of housing options. Now, that's all I have to say about Ulster County now because the study will be done by the end of the calendar year. So tune in. Now, one other thing. Remember, our week-long virtual housing forum is November 16th through November 20th. This year's event is entitled Housing Matters, Shelter from the Storm. Mark your calendar now and look for more information about registering for the forums on our social media, emails from us, and on our website. I promise you it'll be a great event. Again, November 16th through the 20th, Hope to see you there. Thanks, J.D. Today's guest is Jonathan Bowles, the executive director of the Center for Urban Futures. For those of you that don't know the center, it's a catalyst for smart and sustainable policies that reduce inequality, 
increase economic mobility, and grow the economy in New York City. And boy, are they going to be challenged right now. An independent, nonpartisan policy organization, the center uses fact-based research to elevate important and often overlooked issues onto the radar of policymakers and advance practical solutions that strengthen New York and help all New Yorkers participate in the city's rising prosperity. And, and, I, and I'm confident, I'm sure Jonathan is confident as New York City people that have followed it for years, um, it will come back. The question is, what will it look like? So three common aims of the center are growing New York City's economy and boosting the number of middle income jobs, very important right now, helping more people develop the skills and credentials needed to access careers that put them on the path to the middle class. And, and so workforce development is going to play a critical role. And then making New York City and its many diverse neighborhoods a better place to live. Jonathan Bowles, happy to have you as a guest on Patterns and Paradigms. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Um, and and when you're, you know, personally, you're doing fine. And the center itself, okay. It's, I mean, it would seem like the issues that you focused on in, um, at the center are needed now more than ever before. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, my family and I are, are doing just fine. Um, we're one of the lucky ones. And, um, and the Center for an Urban Future, um, yeah, we're chugging along. And, and in fact, um, we're, we're doing more than ever. Um, we're a fairly small think tank uh, focused on New York City. And this is a time when a lot of the issues we focus on around New York City's future um, are, are more important than ever. And so, um, you know, we've been doing a number of policy reports that have been very kind of quick turnaround uh, focused on the moment. Uh, we've been having, we've had probably about a, a dozen or so policy forums just in the last six months, really kind of bringing experts together uh, to try to understand what are the big opportunities and challenges facing the city. Uh, we don't pretend to have all the answers ourselves, but we've been trying to facilitate those discussions and try to get ideas in front of uh, policymakers. Um, I'd like to think of this, given um, all of your work in equity, is that almost carpe diem moment where maybe we can change a lot of the policy thinkers' um, uh, vision of what economic development looks like to be more equitable. Do you too think this is that moment in time where as we start to build back better, as the governor says, we can try to figure out how more people can share in it? I think it is that moment. I think we absolutely need to. And I'm really heartened by the fact that there's so many people talking about this today, I think more than ever. Um, I don't think it's easy to build back better. In fact, I think we're already seeing in this economy that the kind of bifurcated economy that we had is you know, even accelerated. And, and I think that the folks that have been harmed the most uh, with layoffs and other things, you know, tend to be folks in low wage industries, uh, people, uh, communities of color. Um, in many ways, they're perpetuating or accelerating a lot of the disparities that already existed in the city's economy. And so it's absolutely imperative that we build back better, better or differently. And I want to start by saying, first of all, you know, I'm one of those folks that believe New York City's economy was rolling 
before this. We, you know, we had, you know, the city had really turned it around in a good way, and and the city's economy in many ways, in almost every way, was was, was clicking on all cylinders, all time high for jobs in New York City. The unemployment rate was below four percent. Uh, you know, there was investment in all five boroughs, every corner of the city. You know, it's just that um, there were a lot of uh, inequities in the economy. A, a lot of uh, there was a growth, a significant growth in, in the working poor, um, in part because so much of the new job growth was in low wage uh, job industries. Um, things like home health care, restaurants, nail salons, child care. And, and I think that, you know, while there was a lot of good jobs growing in New York, maybe more so than any other city. Uh, in fields like tech and advertising, um, other business services, you know, a lot of folks from lower income communities weren't accessing those jobs. And I think understandably so going into this uh, crisis, there was a growing frustration. There was a hostility to any kind of development that we've seen only accelerated in recent months. And that's creating real problems for the city because we need to create jobs. We need to get get through this crisis with some economic growth and economic investment. Uh, but I think a lot of people understandably are frustrated and upset that the development and economic growth that's happened hasn't always benefited them. Yeah, I, I think, uh, let me just point out to our listeners that um, my organization is your neighbor in the Hudson Valley. And 40% pre-pandemic were living paycheck to paycheck. And if anything, the um, pandemic and the economic disruption has put a magnifying glass on that disparity between those that have the means to get through this and those that truly are struggling. Um, you've, among the many um, uh, convenings that you've done. Um, one, let's just go right to, you, you did one recently helping small businesses in Queens in the hardest hit neighborhoods. Uh, what did you learn and what could you share with our listeners? Because what, although you principally work in New York City, people sometimes forget that New York City is composed of a lot of neighborhoods, which can translate into what we might do in smaller places like a Kingston, a Poughkeepsie, a Newburgh. And so what did you learn when you did that event? We learned a lot of things. Uh, probably first of all, that small businesses are obviously hurting. They're, they're scraping to get through this. Um, many are not surviving. Um, many are, there's a lot of uncertainty whether they will survive or not. Um, a couple other things. One is that small businesses need customers. You know, they need business. They need sales. A lot of times we think about what's the government response? Should it be a loan or a grant? And I completely agree that the government needs to help out. Um, but I think that we sometimes forget that what these restaurants and retail shops and other stores and businesses need, they need people to go out and shop. And I think in this pandemic, that's, you know, they, they've been unable to get their full customer base in part because, you know, stores have not been able to get people going inside either because of prohibitions you know, health regulations that have been put in place or because people are really wary of going inside to to shop or to eat or other things, understandably so. Uh, and also, I think because a lot of people are out of work and no longer have the money to shop at a lot of these places right now. So, you know, for a lot of reasons and, and you know, in, in a place like New York City, especially, but I think also in the Hudson Valley, 
you know, we've lost customers that were there before. So in the case of, let's say, Midtown or downtown Manhattan, you know, all the tourists that were there before in New York City has about 66 million tourists every year that went to zero, you know, and John, all the, the Hudson office workers that were in those districts every day, that went almost to zero. We're now at maybe 10 or 15 percent of office workers are back into their uh, offices in New York City right now. And so all of those things, I think, have really contributed to to just uh, make it almost impossible for small businesses to hang on. Um, and so they need business. And one of the things that really um, stood out to me in one of our recent panels that is that um, someone said that after 9-11, it was almost, it felt like a patriotic duty for New Yorkers to go to a Broadway show. And I think that we were kind of kind of saying and signaling that it needs to be a patriotic duty for those that have the means right now to kind of invest in restaurants and local shops, to buy local, to get out there and go support these businesses so they hang on. The, the other thing really quickly that we found in our uh, those events, uh, the, the Queens Forum and others that we've had is that, um, is that you know, while the, the federal PPP program was, was really helpful for a lot of businesses, even those that were able to access it, you know, it may not have been the best for them. Um, and, and, and I say that only because um, for many small businesses, really small businesses, a lot of the minority owned businesses, immigrant owned businesses that we were looking at, for them, they don't have 100 or 150 employees and the payroll protection program was really kind of an incentive, uh, you know, a payment based on the payroll you have and to help you meet payroll. And for a lot of the smallest restaurants and other businesses in New York City, that's not the big thing. They have five or 10 employees. And so their payroll is not their biggest challenge. It's rent. And so for a lot of New York City businesses, particularly the smallest ones, you know, they're trying to figure out how do they pay their rent when they're not getting like more than 10, 20, 30, maybe 50% of the business they did before the pandemic. Um, I, I was going to say it, the Hudson Valley also relies on tourism. It is a big business in the Hudson Valley. And a lot of that is that rebound of people going to New York City for tourism and then saying, oh, we could also just jump up into the Hudson Valley or residents of uh, New York City coming up here. And clearly that has been felt as well up here that uh, people are not coming in the numbers. And so, but I think your point is, is right spot on in terms of even if they open, will people return? And will they return in the numbers that will help? So any thoughts on how do we advise small business on what they can do to just eat through the next month, two months, three months? I, you know, I quite agree there'll be a number of casualties. But is there any thoughts that came out of that session to say, here, here are some ideas that might help you? Yeah, well, um, a few. I mean, I think that one, I think we all have to think outside the box. And, um, you know, I think that in New York City, for instance, the outdoor dining um, was a lifeline. You know, I don't I don't think, you know, it was the first thing that occurred to everybody. It, it, it got started a little later than I think it could have. But once it did, you know, restaurants just kind of, you know, improvised. They just made it happen and, and put up, you know, ad hoc barriers and tables people did it differently but they made it work and it was the one way they could get some some income some customers back and and i think we need to think about 
how does that apply to other things? You know, how can we use that same kind of in, innovative, you know, ingenuity to uh, kind of other aspects of business? And so, you know, um, as we as we head towards colder months ahead, you know, um, you know, are, are there ways that government can help small businesses with the purchasing of outdoor heaters? Are there ways that we can put up kind of temporary shed or you know, kind of coverings um, to help help small businesses figure that out? Even if small businesses end up being the ones that pay for it all, like can government very quickly allow the flexibility for, for small businesses so they know they're not going to get fined if they don't do it, you know, to like the 10th you know, point in the regulations, uh, but to give uh, 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 businesses the kind of, you know, the clear understanding of what they can and can't do and also the flexibility to do it and not to get in trouble um, because we've, we've got to just let them get customers one way or the other. I think also to be able to help small businesses use use digital uh, in ways that they haven't before. You know, um, you know, there's a lot of people with means in, in, in and around New York that um, that are going to be, you know, occasionally ordering something online. And right now they're going to Amazon and they're going to Macy's.com. And, you know, there's not a lot of other things that, that people know. And, you know, there's some great small businesses that have things to offer but people don't know how to get there. You know, either if they don't know the name of a company, let's say in Poughkeepsie or, you know, on Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, you know, like how do they help that business? And, and so we've been looking into things like how do you, how does local government or local industry or business associations, business improvement districts, chambers of commerce help create platforms for local small businesses so if, if I'm living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and I'm interested in shopping around for different things, you know, can, is there one place I can go to to know, you know, some boutiques in Poughkeepsie, you know, or, you know, some, you know, interesting like, you know, artisanal gardening equipment in Newburgh or, you know, like, you know, it's got to be easier. We all we're all getting used to online shopping much more than ever before. Uh, and for those that haven't lost their jobs, they are going to be ordering things. And and how how do we make sure small businesses, local businesses, can access those opportunities and get in front of people? Uh, so those are a couple of things. So so two thoughts that come to mind. One is that the um, the initial capital outlay could be handled through a tax credit down the road. I know that doesn't help in the beginning, but it would be nice to know that if you invested, that you could be taken care of in your tax return by being able to write some of that off. And then, as we all, as our listeners will quickly gather, I am not the most technologically savvy person, but it's almost as if what you're suggesting is that you would, if you were going online to search for something, there would be another program that would default and say, and here's your local option. You know, like if you're typing in, you know, uh, some kind of household good, it would automatically take you within that a geographic area to, and here's where you could source that locally. Um, certainly in the Hudson Valley, we talk about that in, with food all the time. And um, what a great idea. I mean, I know there was a campaign started what, by the state uh, 
New York for New Yorkers and in order to try to get people to spend their money local. Maybe not the best name, but the point is well-intentioned. And I think you're right. There's a lot of money in the city that could be spent somewhere. So why not spend it local? And um, that's a great idea. Um, you also recently did a forum on tourism. And um, you said six ways for New York City to restore tourism. So what was on your mind? Well, I want to connect the two because I think that these days, I think our finding was that tourism today is all local and regional tourism. You know, um, we're not getting international tourists. We're not getting domestic tourists for the most part. And, and so, you know, I, I, I've, I've read about, I've heard about the New York uh, for New Yorkers. Um, I think that statewide and in our cities, we haven't done quite enough uh, to really promote aggressively people buying local, shopping local. I mean, that's what tourists ultimately do for an economy. You know, you get bring all these people in and not only do they go to the Broadway theaters um, and the museums, but they go out to restaurants, they shop at local businesses, they buy T-shirts, they look at boutiques, you know, and that's great for the local economy. And we put up with some negatives from tourists. And, you know, in New York City, there's been a lot of crowded streets because of tourists and, and other you know, drawbacks. But look, they're really great for the economy. And I'm sure that upstate uh, and Hudson Valley communities, uh, you know, know the same thing, that it can really put, put important dollars in people's pockets. And, you know, I think that we need to really kind of look to local and regional folks uh, to, to do this, to, to really help these small businesses survive. Um, but there's got to be more of a marketing campaign to those folks with means that you were referring to. And, um, you know, I think some things have been done, but I, I don't think that the kind of urgency has been there. Um, and, and I think that our marketing and tourism promotion agencies uh, across the state uh, need to do a lot more. I think the state should be coordinating and putting in some resources for this. Um, but, um, but you know, I think there's, there's so much more that can be done. Like I said, that, you know, after 9-11, it was, it was a patriotic duty to go in and go to a Broadway. But we need to make sure that people feel like they have that sense of responsibility to help these businesses through this. And uh, that might be buying local art um, from, you know, you know, because art is so critical to the economy in New York. Um, how do we get that through? It may be going to, to local restaurants or supporting, you know, food producers upstate. But like we've got to really market the hell out of this. Um, and, and then I think we have to, you know, in our six ideas piece talked about a couple of specific ways that we can do this. Um, one interesting way that um, that we saw in London was that it wasn't just the aggressive marketing, which they did, uh, but they also created a government backed uh, discount program, um, which I thought was really great model for New York State, um, where they provided uh, a 50 percent discount up to a certain amount of spending uh, for people that went out to restaurants on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday night. And um, the idea was like, okay, we want to not only tell people to go shop locally, but we're going to give them a little bit of incentive to do that and help pay for part of the price of doing that, especially on the slowest nights for local restaurants. And, and so, you know, maybe restaurants are going to be able to get people in on a Friday or Saturday night still, but how do we get them even like on other nights? And in New York, uh, in New York City, at least, we noticed that um, one of the great things about tourists 
were that they help keep restaurants in business on all five days of the week or all seven days. You know, Mondays and Tuesday nights, you didn't see a lot of New York City residents going out to residents, but you did see a lot of uh, tourists shopping uh, on those nights. And so, you know, how do we get New Yorkers to think that we've got to be the tourists today? Um, and so providing a discount like that might be helpful. Also, we talked about um, a much more aggressive statewide uh, coordinated campaign, the kind of New York for New Yorkers. Um, I don't think we've seen quite the level that I'm envisioning here. There needs to be cross promotion. You know, I think that New York City should be urging residents to go up to the Hudson Valley and go, you know, on hikes and go horseback riding and go visit the antique shops uh, in towns across, you know, Hudson Valley and many other things as well. Um, but I think that we need then uh, recipro reciprocity to have the Hudson Valley, you know, tell their residents, hey, New York City restaurants are open right now. Go on a Saturday night or a Friday night, come in and dine out at a restaurant. I I'm disappointed that this summer when we had great weather, we didn't see that kind of, you know, kind of reciprocal, um, you know, tourism promotion in, in a more aggressive way. Uh, I think also we can be promoting the Finger Lakes and, you know, Niagara Falls and the, the wineries on Long Island. You know, I, I, it's not just New York City and the Hudson Valley, but, but um, we pointed out that the state of California kind of did this and, and that there was a lot of cross promotion between Napa Valley and Los Angeles and San Francisco and other parts of the state and that the state really brought the localities together and helped make it happen. And, um, you know, I just think that like small businesses are scraping by and many aren't going to survive. And for, you know, local and regional tourism can provide that little iota of a difference. So um, I think we could do better. I think that's a it's a series of really good ideas. And it goes to the, the overall mantra that you hope people understand that we are all in this together, that getting through this is going to take, you know, looking out for your neighbor on where you live, but your neighbor now has to be defined certainly as New York. And, and I think we're at this interesting point where the transmission of the virus is so low in New York that maybe you don't want people, you know, if, if you're worried that people will come in from outside of New York, then Jonathan, we have to do what you're saying, which is to say, well, then it, even if we stay within New York, how do we help each other? How do we, and, and the reciprocity is very interesting idea. Um, I'm sure some of my listeners in the Hudson Valley will say, well, it's great if they come up here. Well, yes, and once in a while you can go down there safely and follow all the protocols that you need to. You used to do it. You used to like to go into the city once in a while for dinner, so why not now? So I think that's a, a great way to think about it. What what's your general impression about the the inner core? You know, unfortunately, that's what's projected to the world that Manhattan is stark in terms of there aren't people going to work. It, let, let remote work is that something that is here to stay, or is that going to also be? You know, I, who was like someone just recently said that almost as you framed it, out of a patriotic duty, he is ordering his workers to come to work, uh, CEO in Manhattan. And, you know, I, 
Obviously, you have mixed feelings because people have a different level of tolerance to the virus. And, you know, some people are genuinely just scared. But, um, you know, what do you think happens as this unfolds? You know, and, and, and crystal ball stuff, but where, where do you think we're going in the next three months as we head into the winter? Um, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Um, look, as far as uh, people working remotely, I think um, it's too early to know. Uh, you know, I think that people have gotten used to it. I think some level of remote work and work from home is going to stick. Um, you know, I think me for one, uh, you know, I, my office, we've, we've been working remotely. Um, our office is in lower Manhattan. I live in Forest Hills and Queens. And, um, you know, I've certainly enjoyed not having to commute like almost an hour every day uh, downtown. Um, you know, that's a couple more hours a day I have to either, you know, hang out with my family or to get to work. Um, and, um, you know, but at the same time, I can tell you that I never knew how many leaf blowers there were, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I live in a, you know, in, in, in the city in Queens, but, but, but I, there's a bunch of small lawns near me. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people feel fear that, you know, people are going to just keep moving to the suburbs of places, perhaps like Hudson Valley and, and, and into Westchester and Long Island. And, you know, but like just working from your home where there are lots of lawns and more outdoors is not always the most conducive for work. And I, you know, I find it sometimes really hard to work from home. And, you know, I think also in Manhattan or, or Brooklyn and other parts of New York City, and, you know, people don't want to be in their cramped apartments all the time. We all need social. Uh, we all actually, I uh, think businesses do better when people are together, uh, when they're sharing ideas and they're, you know, cross-pollinating. That's how innovation happens. So, you know, I think we may see some of the how the homework, some of the remote work continue going forward. Um, you know, but I think it's definitely you know important for New York City's future that that people get back to the office eventually. You know, I mean, the whole kind of purpose or you know the what what makes the city's economy great, and I think I would argue then the region overall is is that it's such a convenient place for for people to come in from everywhere. You know, it's like. You know, Manhattan, it allows people, you know, a company like a Google or JP Morgan Chase or City, you know, they have such big workforces and they can draw the best talent from all over the region. But, you know, it really works best in Manhattan. Um, and um, and so, yeah, they may be able to be more flexible and have some of that work um, in, in, at people's homes. But I think Manhattan still makes the most sense for for a lot of this. And um and so I think it's important for, for Manhattan to get back uh, into the swing of things, um, you know, but it's going to take some time and we don't really know. There's so many uncertainties, as you mentioned at the top about about this virus and how quickly it will come back. We don't know how met, how much of the work will come back to Manhattan. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how, how to make sure that happens. Um, one, you know, quickly going back to that tourism piece that we did. Uh, you know, one idea we threw in there was uh, was an example from what Montreal has done to get people back into their downtowns. Now, Montreal doesn't have both a downtown and a midtown like Manhattan does, but I think it was very equivalent. They saw people weren't going back to their downtown and a lot of local businesses were hurting and the, the vibrancy was was gone. 
And so they try to just program it in a lot of ways. They tried to get people to come back and to lure people back. They created these, what they call terraces, you know, outdoor seating places uh, where they would have like secret concerts and, and dining and other things that were done in a safe way. But the whole thing was almost to get people, hey, you haven't been back to the downtown area in a while, come, check it out. And here we have these kind of cool things that we programmed in this area. I think that Midtown Manhattan may, may have to do that and remind people, hey, this is there was something pretty cool about this place before you left in the pandemic. We want to get you back and start remembering that this is still a pretty dynamic place uh, and that you should come back for the long term as well. Um, I think that the Hudson Valley has enjoyed a symbiotic relationship with New York City. And I think right now we're going to have to search for or wait for. I don't know which one it is um, because sometimes you can't always force it. But it's a question of finding the equilibrium, you know, where we went from the lowest. I mean, we didn't know a sector. And I'm going to ask, that's the next question I want to ask you, Jonathan. We didn't know a sector that wasn't struggling to find employees pre-pandemic. Now, you go to, you know, large unemployment. And I'm not certain that we even know what that unemployment number is because there are employers that haven't yet revealed their plans for 2021, whether they're going to be taking everyone back. Um, but in July, you held an event and you started to suggest that there were some industries that might lead the way for New York City. Um, and, and what were some of those and where did you think that? July seems like an eternity ago, but back in July, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot, a lot of the people we asked, um, it's still very early, it's hard to know, but I think that in part, you know, you can kind of look to see what's holding up better in this, uh, in this crisis. Um, and so, you know, it was a lot of the same things that, that we saw beforehand, except not necessarily the hospitality related and low wage jobs. Um, and so, you know, technology, um, I think, is going to continue to drive a lot of the, the higher wage economic growth. I, th I think that we're only going to see more industries embrace technology and that more of the jobs, not just in the quote unquote tech sector, but in finance and healthcare and so many parts of the economy, I think we're going to see technology jobs grow. Uh, people that have to have some kind of di digital background or uh, fluency or, you know, just, just some uh, just comfort in, in with working with digital tools. Um, I think, um, you know, New York City has always done pretty well with our creative industries and notwithstanding the challenges facing the art sector right now, um, we've seen creative fields like uh, advertising, design, architecture hold up fairly well. Um, I think, um, you know, also uh, film and TV have done really well in recent years. Uh, that's slowed down a little bit because there have been challenges to people um, actually going in and shooting uh, at this point and getting all the crews together. Um, but I still think that people are going to crave content. You know, if we are a little slow to come out into public, and go back to Broadway shows or to get all together, you know, the home life may, may continue 
you know, in, in bigger uh, numbers than before, people staying with their families or, you know, doing things with their loved ones rather than necessarily getting out to parties and doing public events, you know, that might linger for a little while. And I think that, you know, content online and, you know, Netflix and other things I think is, is going to be a growth area. Um, I think when it comes to the lower wage fields, um, I think that certainly all the logistics and delivery uh, couriers, you know, we've seen uh, a real growth in um, not just like people buying things from Amazon and needing, you know, delivery trucks and people that are actually, you know, driving those vans and trucks and the warehouse folks that I think, you know, support all that activity. That's going to grow. But also there's a lot of like last mile, like couriers and messengers. Uh, people are now ordering pharmaceuticals uh, through, you know, you know, technology companies like Capsule in New York City and other places where they have, you know, home delivery. And so maybe maybe they're ordering it through Rite Aid or CVS or, you know, as well. But now they need need folks to deliver that. And so that's that's growing. People are, are doing more, you know, DoorDash and other kind of uh, restaurant delivery and food delivery as well. And so, you know, those are some things that I think are growing in general one of the biggest worries that I have uh, concerns about this downturn, downturn is just the impact on low-wage workers. Uh, and you talked uh, about how many folks were living paycheck to paycheck. And, um, you know, there was a lot of low-wage job growth in New York uh, in, the, in the years leading up to this. And I think a lot of us, including myself, were, you know, thinking, you know, it's great that jobs are being created, but boy, can we get more of them to be good jobs or can we get more people into good jobs? And I still think that's really important. But I think that I'm also thinking right now that, you know, some of those low wage jobs were, were, were very important, you know, for, you know, so many folks that are out of, out of work right now and they're not even getting that paycheck, you know, that paycheck brought them at, you know, at least get, get them, got them to survive. And now what are they doing? And, and you know, there's just too many folks in this region that don't have a bachelor's degree, that don't have great digital skills, uh, and I think aren't necessarily poised. Not everybody can get into a technology field, and we've got to do a lot better, and that's a, bu a bunch of our work at the Center for Urban Futures focus on how do we get more folks from lower income backgrounds into the good jobs of today, but I also think we need to figure out how do we help low-wage workers? Um, what are the low-wage jobs or the accessible jobs of the future? How do we improve the quality of those jo those jobs? Um, but um, you know, it really concerns me um, not only with all the trends we're seeing in this pandemic with low wage work, but also with the fact that retail is you know the the kind of you know issues uh, with you know the challenges facing retail that we saw beforehand. People shopping online, you know, that's only accelerating, and we may see people that used to work in a clothing shop like. Now their, they, their job might not come back. And then on top of all that, you know, the tourism is going to be one of the slowest industries to come back. And that supported a lot of lower, lower wage, more accessible hospitality jobs. And then and even on top of that, we're seeing a kind of a growth and acceleration in automation. And uh, not just in the manufacturing and industrial sectors, but in all segments of the economy. And we found that lower skill jobs are most at risk to automation. And so for all those reasons, 
you know, I don't, I don't know all the answers, but I, I have a, a lot of concerns for, uh, for low-skilled workers or workers without a college degree. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, some people have described that what occurred in technology in the last six months would have taken 10 years, that the, um, the ability to do remote work, uh, telemedicine, um, and you and there you can have different opinions about this as to whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. I guess if you were looking for a technological solution for certain things, it may very well have been a good thing um, for some of it. Telemedicine helps certainly in my region for some of the more rural areas to access quality health care. At least there was an option. It may not have been perfect, but it was an option. Um, that assumes that we have a different issue with broadband. You know, there's just not enough broadband um, to cover our region. But Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your insights as to what's happening in New York City. Is there anything else you want to add there as a thought? You know, is there some, you know, in your crystal ball, is there something we should be looking for, you know, optimistically that as it comes back, we want to do something differently. Anything else? You know, I mean, the only thing that comes to mind right away is just that, um, I guess, optimistically speaking, you know, New York was the poster child for COVID tragedy in March or April. And look how far we've gotten. You know, I think that you know, uh, there are some risks right now. And New York City is seeing some neighborhoods that, that are at kind of, you know, crisis or, or danger levels right now, levels of concern. But I think in general, the fact that we were able to turn it around is, 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 is really something that I think we need to take hold of. And I think that New York City, you know, if we can get out of this being able to, to tell the world and to tell New Yorkers that, you know, we were one of the few places that figured this out, that, that you know, if this ever were to happen again, that New York knows how to do this, you know, that we could be one of the safest places in the globe in, in kind of dealing with a public health crisis like this. You know, I think that would really be that would well serve New York uh, for the future. What what a great way to end this discussion with uh, a note that, you know, it, it is actually even a marketing thing. New York can figure anything out. And yes, we made some mistakes early on, but who didn't? We didn't know much about it. But Jonathan, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. And uh, I wish you luck in solving all the issues that New York has. But um, this is what you've been training for for 20 years. So I hope people know how to access you. And thank you again. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.